Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well today. As we jump into today's message, I want to start by asking you a question. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? You think about it, some of you are laughing like, oh man, <laughs> you don't want to know that story, Pastor. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? And some of you might think back to when you were a kid. Remember that summer going off the high dive, the first time you climbed up on the high dive diving board, at the, whether it was at the local pool, the neighborhood pool, your own pool, at the school. Or maybe if you grew up in the north like me, or you've seen the movie Christmas Story, a triple dog dare you to stick your tongue on that frozen thing. Whatever it was, a pole or a fence or whatever it was at that moment. Or, or maybe it was a, remember when you used to ask a girl out and you'd look her in the eye, not text message her? Crazy, crazy world. Trust me, young people, it existed at one point. You actually walk, you didn't know if they even knew you existed. And you'd ask, will you want to go, will you go with me when you're in elementary school? Will you go on a date with me as you get older? And, and I was thinking about it this week and, and I realized there was a time when I used to think differently about risk than I do now. I used to think like a kid, now I think more like a parent. And this summer we were on vacation together as a family and our two oldest daughters decided to go on a bike ride and they rode their bikes to this body of water. It wasn't the ocean. There was actually, it was kind of like a swampy water. And they're out on this dock and they were talking to each other about what they were going to do with this water. They didn't know that my wife, Shanna, was going to come and check on them. And when she came and checked on them, they were talking about jumping off the dock into the water. And she kindly reminded them, as a very calm, rational mother would, There's a sign right next to this dock that says there's alligators in this water. And then they came back home. They told me the story. We're never short on trauma and drama at our house. And so we were talking about this. And I decided it would be a fatherly moment for me to tell them all the worst case scenarios of what could have happened in that moment with those alligators. And so I said, you know, the alligators, they're basically like swimming dinosaurs. They can swim faster than you. And I told them about the death roll. I don't know if you know about the death roll. I was like, they'll get you, hold you down at the bottom, just start rolling you around on the bottom. Well, At that moment, I discovered the personality of two of my daughters. It was the two oldest, and the second daughter said, no, like, I would have died. I'm so sorry, Dad. This is terrible. My oldest daughter is a teenager. Those of you who have teenagers will understand. It's like, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Death roll, like none of that stuff. But fortunately for me, I've got a phone. And so I pulled my phone out. I said, all right, we'll look up some facts about alligators. And I started to read to her different facts about alligators. Here you go, fact. Dwight, fact. They have mouths full of 80 razor-sharp teeth. I read them about the death roll. That's another fact on here. They can run 11 miles per hour. We haven't timed our kids on that, but I'm pretty sure the alligator would catch them. They can swim up to 20 miles per hour. They can hold their breath for up to an hour. Okay, so they can swim fast. They're really modern dinosaurs, and they've got a bunch of sharp teeth in their mouth. They never stop growing. I didn't know that. They grow to between 8 and 15 feet long. They can become desensitized to humans and make a mistake and mistake you for food. (laughs) That was the last fact that I needed in that moment. And my goal in that moment was I didn't want my kids to be eaten by an alligator. And some of you are like, I would have done the same thing. Some of you are like, man, your kids are going to need so much counseling. But, But I thought at that moment I was being a good dad. But then I also, I don't want my kids to be eaten by an alligator. But I do want them to take risks. Do you know why? Because God wants us to risk. And we live in a day and age now where so we wrap our kids in bubble wrap to send them out of the house, right? Like, if you thought about, like, so those of you who are about, like, about my age, when I was a kid, my car seat was my mom's arm, like, she's stopping me in the front seat. Now we strap our kids, like, we're not sending them to the moon. We're driving them to the grocery store. It's in the Indy 500. We're in a minivan, okay? Like, that's what's happening. We've got these racing straps and helmets and, like, all kinds of stuff. And, 
and that's part, and we want, I don't want kids to get hurt in a car accident, I totally understand that, but there's something nonverbal that happens in many of us with our culture that lives in constant fear. And we can come up with every reason not to risk. But why should we risk? One pastor and author, Mark Batterson, says about God's plan, he says that God's will is not an insurance plan, it's a dangerous plan. And just think about what Jesus actually says in the Gospels. If anyone wants to save his life, he'll lose his life. That sounds risky. If anyone, anyone ever throughout history wants to come follow me, you've got to take up an execution instrument, deny yourself, your world's not all about you, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, I don't know if I like that, and follow me. That's some risky stuff. Carl Walenda is the father of the famous Walenda family that does tightrope walking. And he says that, that living is life out on the tightrope. Everything else is just waiting. And today as we open up our passage of Scripture, I want you to ask yourselves this question. What, what does God want you to do to take a risk? Maybe today. But so not like someday, but what risk does God want you to take today or this week? Because what we're going to see as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that Paul tells us why he risks if you think about it, I've shared with you already as we've gone through this book, this is the, the most vulnerable book that the Apostle Paul writes. Out of the 13 books in the New Testament that he authors, this one tells the most about his personal life. And, and in what we know about Paul, we know he's a smart guy. Like he could come up with a career where he stays at home, writes some books, maybe goes out and speaks every once in a while. But what we've seen is he's beaten, he gets flogged, he gets stoned, he's constantly in danger, he's perplexed, persecuted, experiencing every affliction, like we've already seen these things in 2 Corinthians. Why? Why? You're smart enough to get around this, you're smart enough to have a career that will pay you and you don't have to do this, you're smart enough, you can still live for God and not do these things, right? He doesn't think so. So look at what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, starts with 4. Now we can't start there, so we're going to connect back here in just a minute, but 4 we know that if the, if the tent, what? That is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, so he's obviously using an analogy here, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Whoa, yeah, okay, sounds great. He's talking about without a body, which would be a very fearful thing for a Jewish reader. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's an important word. You might underline that if we're reading through this. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. That's key. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Sounds risky. Yes, we are of good courage. Oh, we just read that. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, here's our goal, to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith, from our perspective, seems risky because we don't know the outcome. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Did you notice that verse 6? Verse 6 says that we're always of good courage. That's an interesting statement. It sounds a lot like what we read last week. If you were here with us last week, in chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And then verse 16, so we do not lose heart. And last week, if you were with us, you know that we talked about 
not being discouraged. How can we have courage? Discouragement is the opposite of courage. How can we have courage in the midst of discouragement? And we live in some discouraging times. And so we walk through a passage of Scripture looking at that. And what we see here is the first five verses of this chapter. He talks about why he would have courage. And he says in verse 6, we also, because of the things I just said in the first five verses, we always have good courage. And then verse 8, we, verse 7, we walk by faith. Verse 8, we are of good courage. So what was the first five verses about? Well, you've got to go back to verse 1 to figure that out. In verse 1, it starts with the word for. You can't start a conversation with for. Because, therefore. Like it connects to what came right before it. So what came right before it? We'll look back a couple verses where we ended last week. In verses 17 and 18 in chapter 4. It says, for this reason. Okay, because of all the stuff that we talked about last week, verse 1, don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because of this. We walk through the whole passage. And then verse 16, we don't lose heart because of this. And then it says here in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight. So he's contrasting the temporary with the eternal. This momentary suffering, these momentary afflictions contrasted with the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, temporary, but the things that are unseen, eternal. For the things that are seen are transient, means temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so when he gets to verse 6 and talking about this courage, he's contrasting temporary and eternal. And he's using this analogy of a tent here, and what he's showing us is this. You want to know a reason why we should risk? Because eternity is really long, and everything here is really short. So our first point today is simply this, eternity dares us to risk for God. Eternity dares us to risk for God. Last week as we were wrapping up the message, we were talking about how people who live in light of eternity live differently. Because they live like the early church lived, like this place is not our home. Like this is just a transient place. Our problem is a lot of times we make this place our home and we act like everything's here. And just look how many of us plan our lives. We spent all the college and growing in, going into college, what am I going to do with my career? Then we spend our whole career, 30, 50 years, however long you work, working towards retirement, and then retirement's like 20 years long. How silly is that in light of eternity? Forever? Like, there's a reason why when we sing Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, it's like we just began. Eternity? Trillions, trillions of years. But we focus our lives on segments of 30 and 20 and the early Christians lived like they were transient. You know why? Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. They're looking to a place in the future. They've got the future place as a goal. Paul didn't just look at heaven as a destination. It was a motivation in his life for the way that he lived his life. Eternity pushed him to risk. That's why he says, I have perplexed, persecuted. Read chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Suffering every kind of affliction. Why would you do this? Are you a fool? He says, if we're out of our minds, it's, it's for, because of God. If we're in our right minds, we're doing that for your sake. That's how we're living to contextualize the message that we have. It's for you. But we are, from this world's perspective, we would be considered crazy because I'm continually putting myself in danger and doing these things, living with life this way because I'm living in light of eternity. Ever been around people that live with the end in mind? I was reflecting on it this week. I remember one time my wife and I went to Greece. And while we were there, we were doing some missions work. And we, we had met up with this pastor that was the pastor of First Evangelical Church of Athens. And he taught us some things. I didn't know about Greece. He taught us that, that Greece is really the gateway for refugees coming into Europe. Their ultimate goal is to get to America. Most of them will never do that. But their goal is to get to America. 
And so they're doing different outreaches of this church. One day we were able to be a part of one. They were feeding lunch to the refugees who had just come into town and giving out sleeping bags. There were way more refugees than there were sleeping bags. I, I wasn't there for the feeding of the 5,000, but somehow we ended up having enough sleeping bags at the end of this deal. And, and I remember I went and I sat and I talked with a table of men that had come over from Iraq. And they were talking about fleeing from Al-Qaeda. Crazy, wild stories they were telling us. There was one guy at the table. There were seven of them there. There was one guy at the table who spoke English. And so he's telling me the different stories of the journey of how they got there, their families they left behind, how they could never go back, they'll be killed if they go back, and telling, us, telling me all these things. It sounds like a movie, what they're telling me about. But what really struck me was when one of the men said, yeah, we had to build a raft to be able to come over here. It was a handmade raft, and talk about the materials and all that stuff. So there were 14 of us when we started. I said, what? There's seven. Like, I can count them right there, seven. I'm Baptist. I can count fast. How many of you are here today? Here we go. I see that hand. You know what I'm talking about. So there were seven guys sitting at the table. There were four. What happened to the other seven guys? They died. What? They're doing whatever it takes. You know what they believe about America? They actually believe that in America, we're so rich, there's money in the streets. Well, there's a place that's streets of gold. It's not America. But they believe that, and they had this goal to get there. They're willing to do whatever it takes because they were, they're focused on the end. They were going towards what, what they were headed towards. You know what Hebrews chapter 11 says? You want to read a passage of scripture on risk? Read about all the characters in Hebrews chapter 11. Some people call it the hall of faith. And it says that they lived for another city whose builder and architect is God. That's what Paul is talking about here in this passage when he gives us this analogy that gets a little, little twisted, a little confusing as you're going through a tent and a building. What's he talking about here? And he starts off with a tent. Here's what we all know about a tent. A tent is temporary, right? Like, does everybody know that? Tents are, I know we make them now with like bedrooms and kitchens, but tents are temporary. Paul was a tent maker. There's a reason why here now we don't have, you know, the Empire State tent. You know, and Paris doesn't have the Eiffel tent. You know, it's like build a permanent structure. What he's contrasting here is a temporary thing with a permanent thing. The problem is when we make a temporary thing like it's the permanent thing. I give an analogy. A few years back we were talking about eternity in a service one time. And I thought it was a crazy, stupid analogy, actually. And I said, imagine you're staying at a hotel, and you're going to be there for an extended time, maybe a week, seven days at this hotel, and you like the hotel, but you don't love your room, so you decide to do some renovations on the room, and you empty your 401k in order to renovate a room that you're only going to stay in for seven days. And my point was, sometimes we do that with this life. And so it's like a vapor, the Bible says, in light of eternity, but we act like it's permanent, and so we invest everything we have in a temporary thing, and we're fools especially as, as people who know the Bible as believers. And, and, and what, he, what he's saying here with this tent analogy is that that's just temporary. We've got something that's more permanent. He's talking about our resurrection body. But you know what happened when I gave that analogy a few years ago? A guy came up to me after the service in our congregation. He told me I could share this with you. I texted him this week. He works with professional athletes. He said, you know, that analogy really hit home with me. And he's talking about as a Christian and his own life and some of that. But he said, so I have this one athlete who just did that. I was like, what? Like, there's people that actually do that? He said, it wasn't a hotel room. He rented a car, but he put a new stereo system in it, and he did some other modifications of the car. He said, when he took it back to the rental company, he expected them to pay for it. <laughs> I'm like, how dumb is that? But then you back up and go, but wh what does it look like from eternal perspective when we live like this life is all there is? How dumb is that? And that's what Paul's getting at with this. 
Our problem is when we make temporary things permanent things, and he's saying here, your tent is temporary, but he's talking about your body, your physical body. A building's not permanent either, but he's giving a more, the, the best you can do analogy in earthly perspective is this is more permanent structure. Now, if you don't think your bodies are temporary, by the way, uh, welcome to 40. <laughs> That's me. Um, some of you are like 20, and you're like, I just keep getting stronger and faster. Enjoy it. <laughs> it's short, trust me. I woke up this week injured. <laughs> you know what I did last week, the day before? Nothing. Like, I slept. I went to bed, I was fine, I woke up, my back was all hurt, I was like, what is wrong? I came into the office that day, I saw Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave was like, hey, Pastor Scott, and I was like, hey, how's it going? I was like, I got hurt last night, <laughs> I must have been playing volleyball in my sleep, he didn't hear me say in my sleep, he goes, oh, I didn't know you played volleyball, he goes, I don't, I don't know what I dream- dreamt about, but I must have dreamt about volleyball or something, because my back's killing me, we're wasting away. Everything here is temporary, those pains, those aches, that's, it's signs. It's signs. This is not a permanent structure we're in. It's a guarantee. You see, the problem for those guys in Greece that were headed to America is they don't have any guarantees they'd get here. We all have guarantees. Follower of Jesus Christ, you have multiple guarantees. The first one in this text is that your tent is temporary. And Paul talks about that in these first four verses. And then verse five, he gives us another guarantee. Did you see it in verse five? It's the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. He who's prepared us for this very thing, this temporary body is God, who's been given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The word for guarantee, right here in verse 5, is the word like, you, like for an engagement ring. And so some of you, I see some married couples here sitting next to each other today, and guys, hopefully, when you, know, you proposed, you got down on your knee, and you said you know, all the right words at that moment. I remember I said to my wife, Shanna, I said, you know, I'm going I'm to be like Jesus, and I'm going to have the attitude of a servant, and I've read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, no record of wrongs. I've broken like almost all those promises, probably all those promises. Talk about not being selfish. Like, I'm gonna, I was just saying everything I could think of to get her to say yes, to be honest with you, in that moment. Then I took a ring, and I put it on her finger. I said, will you marry me? She said yes, in case you're wondering. <laughs> but the ring was my promise. Promise for a wedding day, promise for a life to come. Here the word that's used in verse five is for an engagement ring. Do you know what the Bible calls the church? It calls us the bride of Christ. And the wedding day is coming. It'll be judgment day. It'll be when Jesus comes back for us or we die and we stand before him and we're reunited with him. This is all temporary. You're gonna have your permanent body in that day. I can't wait to see what our resurrection body is gonna be like. It's gonna be incredible, I'm sure. So will yours be. I read one pastor a couple weeks ago, and he said, you would meet the most boring person in the world. If they were in their resurrection body, you'd be tempted to worship them because of what God's going to do. You are a new creation. That's going to be fulfilled in that day of glorification. But we're going to be worshiping Jesus, so imagine how glorious he must be. That's a guarantee here. And if you want to know if you have the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is he's transforming your life. You see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Greater peace, greater patience, greater joy, greater love, all those things. There's another guarantee in this passage, one we oftentimes don't talk about as Christians. It's in verse 10. I'll I'll read you verses 7 through 10 again. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim, here's the goal, to please Him. So the risks all go towards that, not just risk, not just foolishness but walk in my faith. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what is he done in the body, whether good or evil. And so wait, we don't talk much about judgment. 
We talk a lot about no one can judge each other, but we don't talk much about judgment like we're going to all be judged by God. And so what does that mean as a follower of Jesus? Because here it says, based on what we've done, whether good or evil. Well, here's something to be aware of. This is not the great white throne judgment that's talked about in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, we won't read the verses right now, but you can write in your notes or whatever, look it up on your own, verses 11 through 15. It talks about a judgment that's going to come. We're going to stand before God. Everyone's going to stand before God. If your name's in the book of life, you're in. If your name's not in the book of life, you're cast into hell for all of eternity. It's in the Bible. It's not something like just, this is that kind of church that preaches that. This is, we believe the Bible, and the Bible says that. But for a believer in Jesus Christ, your name's in the book of life because you've placed your faith in Jesus and he gives you eternal life. The wages of our sins, no matter what you do, no one can earn salvation. That's why the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the day of judgment for a follower of Jesus is not a moment of condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know why? Because Jesus took that condemnation at the cross. And the wrath of God was poured out. The penalty for sin was paid at the cross. And if your name's in the book of life, then you place your faith in Jesus. You're not saved by works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's by grace through faith. So you're not saved by your works. But here's the reality. If you're really saved, you have works. And we oftentimes don't talk about that in the church because we don't want to confuse non-believers or, or maybe we just don't want, want to make it evident there's so many people that aren't believers that claim to be believers. But you're not saved by works. Let me be clear about that. But if you're saved, there will be works. And the Bible is crystal clear about that all throughout. And what this passage of Scripture is talking about, the judgment seat here, is called the Bema seat of Christ. In fact, that's the word that's used in the Greek language in this passage when it says judgment is Bema. The Bema seat would be something the Corinthians would be really familiar with. In fact, Paul, in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, you want to look this up on your own later, stands at the Bema seat before the proconsul when he's there. I've been to a stone that they believe was the Bema seat at that place. You know what else they did at the Bema seat? They passed judgments, political judgments in that moment, governmental judgments. But also Olympic athletes will be rewarded there. And what we read about throughout the New Testament is that as believers in Jesus Christ, when we stand before Christ, there's going to be rewards for different ones of us based on things that we've done when we've taken a risk. In fact, you can read other parables, parables like Jesus shared. Where Jesus shared one parable where he talked about different people getting different amounts of, of, of weighted medals, talents, they're called in the Bible. One gets ten, one gets five, one gets one. Do you know what happens to the guy who doesn't risk? He loses even what was given to him. Do you know what happens to the guys who take a risk? They're rewarded and it's multiplied. Do you know what he says? He says, hey, you're going to rule over ten cities and you're going to rule over five cities. And do you know what we learn from that? Not everybody experiences eternity the same. We're all going to be glad we're there. It's going to be way better than the alternate, by the way. But it's going to be incredible. There's not going to be shame. There's not going to be crying. There's not going to be pain. There's not going to be any sin. But everybody's not going to have the same experience. In fact, if you read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll read you this verse. In verse 8, Paul's talking about different people and having different ministries. And, and there shouldn't be division in the church in the context there. But he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Because that's who we are. We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each, I planted Apollos water, but God's the one who grows the church. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. It's not the same for everybody. And you can, you can read about, and maybe in your own study, look up rewards throughout the Bible, but one of the reasons why Paul's motivated to take risks is because of rewards. 
He doesn't want to miss out on the rewards. He, he's, he's just thinking about, like, think about what we do for retirement. So many of us is like, I'll sacrifice now. I'm going to work hard now. I'm even going to work an extra couple years now because I want retirement to be better. Retirement's like 20 years. Eternity will be 20 billion years like that. So our life is just a vapor. Eternity dares us to risk for God because we know this is all temporary. We know it's a guarantee this is temporary. It's a guarantee we have the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend eternity with God and how we live here impacts there. That's, a, that's like a dare. I dare you to live for eternity. And people who live for eternity live different. They risk for God. What risks might God want you to take today? There's another motivator that he gives here, another reason for risk in this passage is in verse 11. Fear persuades us to risk for God. After talking about judgment, he shows us here there's a fear that persuades us to risk for God. And before I even read the next verse, some of you might be thinking to yourself, as I just asked the question, what risk does God want you to take? You might be thinking to yourself, isn't fear the thing that's going to stop me from risking for God? You think about different things God might call you to. I just jotted some down that he may speak to different people in this room today. Maybe, maybe just challenge you to invite somebody to church. Not a huge risk, but you don't know how they're going to respond. So you don't know how it's going to turn out. So it is a risk. And maybe you wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Fear. Maybe challenge you to reconcile a relationship with somebody that's been strained for a long time. And why not? You don't know how they're going to respond. So why not? Fear. Maybe some radical act of generosity God would call you to. And I don't even know. Give to some cause or some, some family in need or something that's close to God's heart and he's spurring you and you know and he's saying it to your heart right now. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, you could say materialism or greed, but doesn't it all boil down to fear? I'm afraid he's not going to provide enough. I'm afraid it's going to be a bad decision. I'm afraid it's fear. Share the gospel with somebody. Have a gospel conversation finally with that neighbor or friend or relative. or who, But what if they don't? And how about Fear. So, well, you're saying fear should persuade us too. Here's the problem. We fear the wrong things. In the Bible, there's good fear and there's bad fear. And all the fears I've been talking about, bad fear. And it tells us we have not been given a spirit of timidity. And there is truth in that faith overcomes fear. Because when we're willing to risk, it shows that we're afraid of something else, the Lord. And we don't like talking about that. In fact, most of you, if you've been in church for any time, you hear people go, well, it's not really fear. It's reverential awe. The Bible says Fear. So let me just read you the next verse. Verse 1 says, or verse 11 says, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So Paul's persuaded to persuade other people. Why? Because of the fear of the Lord. Now, we talk about this reverential awe, but do you see in the Bible when people encounter who God is, they come into contact with them? Oh, you're so honorable. No. They're afraid. Like, I'm a sinful man. I'm going to die. I'm going to be annihilated in your presence. God says to Moses, like, you can't handle seeing all my glory. You'll be annihilated. God dwells in unapproachable light. There's a reason why they're singing holy, holy. That means other, separate, holy, holy, holy. See, we want to talk about God's imminence all the time. Like, he's our friend. He's our buddy. And so we're afraid to talk about his transcendence, that he's other, that he's separate from us, that he is not like us. But when you read in the Bible about fear of the Lord, it's always talking about as a good thing. 
Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we go, okay, well, let's try and manage that. Let's try to make that into something that we're more comfortable with because I don't want my non-Christian friends to think God's scary, and I don't even know if I want to deal with a God that's scary. And you know what we do? We make a God that we like. Paul talks about this in chapter 11 and verse 4, and we talked about this a little bit in chapter 3, where there's another Jesus and we create a God that we're really comfortable with. So I told you that analogy about my, my kids with the alligators. You know what we did the rest of the week, or at least what I did to them, and maybe this was torture, I don't know. You can tell me later, Ava. But every time we drove by the water of where that, those alligators were at, we'd stop, and sometimes we saw alligators. <laughs> and like their eyes popping up out of the water in that moment. And for her, it grew the fear. I, sh- I could have been eaten by that thing, I could be dead. That fear was good. That's a legitimate fear. There's a reason God's given us the emotion of fear, because there's danger. So a little bit later in that vacation, we're at a souvenir shop, and my youngest daughter, she's nine years old, she loves creatures. And so we bought one of those. Have you ever seen those watch them grow animals where they're like styrofoam, and you put them in water, and they're supposed to get like three times the size of what they were? We bought a watch them grow alligator. (laughs) We brought it home. She put it in a cup. She put water in it. We went to bed. We woke up the next day. Supposed to go from like three inches to three and a half feet. It was like three and a half inches the next day. It got puffy. It didn't really grow that much. Let me tell you something. Nobody was scared of that alligator. Do you know why? It was a man-made alligator. Nobody's scared of a man-made God. Because we're not going to make him as infinite and other and transcendent as he truly is. Now, there's some truth to reverential awe. There is some truth to that but I think there's some legitimate fear that we strip away because that's not a God we're comfortable with. Let me tell you something. God doesn't exist for your comfort. Jesus didn't die for your safety. He died for your salvation. And to follow him is risky. And what is Paul afraid of exactly here? He just calls it the fear of the Lord, the fear of this being. As I think through it, though, and the implications of what he's talking about here, maybe fear of missing out on rewards in light of what he's just talked about in judgment. Maybe as he's talking here, it's, it's a fear of what's going to happen to those who aren't persuaded by the gospel and what's going to, where they're going to end up and what their eternal destiny is going to be. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known to you. We're not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, that could be translated out of our minds, it is for God, it seems foolish to this world. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might not no longer live for themselves, what in our self-centered, we've, we invented a selfie, but we're not going to live for ourselves. Okay, That's otherworldly. That's transient. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here Paul talks about a controlling force, and it shows us our third reason. Not only does fear persuade us, not only does eternity dare us, but the love of Christ compels us to risk for him. The love of Christ should compel us to take a risk for God. Paul said here, it controls us is the ESV, and then NIV uses the word compels. They're both trying to get across the same idea, and the idea is there's a pressure in our lives that moves us to a specific action. And here he talks about it's not living for ourselves, and, and what is it that moves us? It's the love of Christ. And so I want to just ask you this simple question. If I could go around this room and look each of you in the eye and ask this question, I would ask this question, 
have you experienced the love of Jesus? And I don't mean, do you know about the love of Jesus? I don't mean, can I quote you a verse about the love of Jesus? And you'd be like, I agree with that. There's a difference, like, in experiencing it. And so, so we, I mean, we've been, people have been, you know, the country went on lockdown for a long time. Also, I'm sure you got found the end of Netflix. What's a, what's a popular love movie right now? I legitimately don't know, so tell me one. For real, come on. Y'all are lying right now, just so you know. I'm not trying to make you do you got any, So let's just say you watch a Hallmark movie, okay? We'll just guess that. I got a friend here who said he watched Hallmark movies every night. Don't judge him. I won't tell you his name. <laughs> Candace Cameron's probably in it, right? Like that's how, so she's a Christian, so that's safe. For all of you who didn't answer my question because you're like, oh, I'm a Christian. Do I watch movies? I don't know what this church is like. Uh. All right, so Candace Cameron is, falls in love with some super handsome fireman and whatever the story is at the end of the thing, and you watch that, and you're like, I know what it is to fall in love. That's one way. Then there's actually falling in love with someone where you're not sure how do they feel about you and you want to talk and you're not sure if you said the right thing and there's the nervousness of all that and then eventually you end up on your knee and you ask this question and you, and you kiss and then the Christmas starts happening and all that. But, all right, real life isn't exactly like a Hallmark movie, but for those of you who've been in love and those of you who've seen a love movie, they're not the same thing, are they? So I'd ask you the question, not do you know about the love of God, but because I can quote you verses on the love of God, but have you experienced his love? See, love always pursues. And, and, and the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Have you been found? Do you experience a level, a piece of the love of God? Because we go after, whatever you love, you go after, right? Like, it could be money, it could be a person, it can be God. Like, you go after whatever you love. And so God loves you, he pursued you, he came after you. It's a pursuing love. It's an unconditional love. So if I thought that you felt shame or you were guilty, you was like, I'm just, I don't know if I felt that, I'm not lovable. Like, it's not about what you've done. You know, I would just say to you, God loves you. Not just God loves the world, he loves you. No matter what you've done, where you've been, what you're currently doing, he loves you. Unconditional love. Unfathom like, think about how unfathomable God's love is. When we get used to this as church people, did he give his child to die for us, his only son? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Would you give your kids for people in this room? Probably not. I wouldn't. Sorry. Love you, but not that much. But not only that, think about how unthinkable this is. Like if you do watch movies, the two of you that watch movies here at this church, <laughs> and you watch a hero movie, I don't care what the genre is, you watch a hero movie and the hero will die for a victim. The hero will die for some vulnerable people. The hero will die for the world. The hero's not going to die for the villain. What movie do you see where the hero dies for the villain? The Bible says while we were sinners. That means we're rebelling against God. He died for He gave his son to die for us, to forgive us, so we could be reconciled to him. Have you experienced that love? Better than life, Psalm 63.3. Your love is better than my life. That's why my lips will praise you. Why were you singing songs today? Why would your lips praise him? I hope it's not just because that's what you do at church. Your lips would praise him, unthinkable, unfathomable, unseparable. He says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Have you experienced that love? Then it should move us, compel us, push it, pressure us, move us to do what? Not live for ourselves, but live for those who haven't experienced that love. Then we'd have a ministry of reconciliation, Paul goes on to say in this passage. Verse 16, from now on, therefore... 
We regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at people like the rest of the world looks at people, judging by outward appearance. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we were judging him that way. We, regard him th- we don't regard him that way anymore. We regard him thus no more. No longer. I don't know why the ESV all of a sudden went King James here, but thus no more. We don't do that anymore, is what he's saying. Therefore, and here's how we do view people, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. So God's the one who does the reconciling. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciled himself to us and gave us, those of us who've been reconciled, the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins, trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So that's what you've been given. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message, simple message. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's our message. That's the risk he wants you to take is a risk getting that message out there to people who don't know because life is short, eternity is long. We fear the Lord and he loves us. That's the summary. He uses this language ambassadors here. Uh, In Roman provinces, there were two types of of areas. There was an imperial province and there was a senatorial province. One was a peaceful one. They had submitted to Roman rule. The other one was rebellious, and given the opportunity, they would overthrow Roman rule. They needed ambassadors sent to them. We live in a province, this world, that's actually in rebellion against God. As we become like this world and not transformed by the gospel, we blend into this world. When we live like this place is not our home, we stand out and we speak on behalf of God a ministry of reconciliation. That God came pursuing you, came after you, wants relationship with you. It's not our job to reconcile you. The Lord do anything in your heart. You can respond to him, but be reconciled. That's the message. So let me ask you this, believers. What risk will you take, maybe today, this week, to help other people be reconciled to Christ? And those of you who are not yet believers, let me go back to verse 17. It says, if anyone, if anyone, regardless of your story, regardless of your beliefs, regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of how you plan to vote on Tuesday, regardless of what you've done in the past or people have done to you, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creator, anyone can be in Christ. And the risk you might need to take today is trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this passage tells you how to do that. And so what I'm going to ask us to do is bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm just going to resummarize the verses we just read. Regardless of what you've done and where you've been, the Bible says that Jesus Christ became sin so that we could become righteousness. And you're not pure. Your thoughts aren't pure. Your behavior hasn't been pure. And what he says to us is we have to confess our sins to him. And that he'll make you pure by your faith in Jesus Christ. He'll make you a new creation. And if you want to become a new creation today, what you do is confess your sins to him. Ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Invite him into your life and he will take over your life. And give you a mission here. And it's a risky and dangerous mission to live by faith, not by sight. If you want to do that, if you want to take that risk right now, will you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I acknowledge my sin before you and I ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I believe that your son Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead and I want to receive eternal life right now. Will you make me a new creation? You can just say that in your own words, however you want to say that, in your heart, in your living room, as you're watching this online or or wherever you're at and sitting in this room. But if you just prayed that prayer, would you let our church know? 
You can let us know in the comments. You can email us. You can call us. If you're in this room right now, would you come see me before you leave this campus today? I would love to meet you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, God, I pray for those of us who are followers of yours. It's so easy to be a hearer of the word and not a doer. What risk do you want us to take? I pray we'd talk about that at lunch. I pray we'd talk about it in our small group. I pray that whatever you put on each one of our hearts, you'd have us tell to another person, flesh and blood person, who can help keep us accountable, that we will take that step of faith, that risk for you, and that we wouldn't grow desensitized to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.